Hi everyone, I'm Anthea Bowater and I'm joined today by my colleagues from around the Freshfields Network, Simon Orton, Tim Mack, David Livshiz and Anne Law Vincent. In December last year, we held a webinar on the rise of ESG disputes against financial institutions. We discussed the drivers for ESG disputes, how they tend to play out in practice, and our views on the key risk areas for firms. In this podcast, we wanted to update you on three themes that have already featured heavily this year, diversity litigation, sustainability reporting and climate commitments, and greenwashing risks for ESG funds. Let's take those topics in turn. David, in December, we discussed the emerging trend of diversity-related litigation in the US and comparisons between a company's policies and its diversity in practice. How are things developing? Do you think we'll see this type of litigation being brought outside of California? And how do you expect courts to deal with the types of novel relief being demanded? Thanks, Anthea. So for a few reasons, I do think we're going to see these claims outside of California. One of the bigger developments since we last discussed this is that about a month ago, the judge hearing the Facebook diversity action dismissed it, or as you would say in the UK, struck it out as legally infirm. One of the three reasons that the judge gave for dismissing the complaint was that Facebook's bylaws require all such claims to be brought in Delaware. Plaintiffs had ignored that forum selection clause, hoping to capitalize on the favorable legal terrain in California. Obviously, that didn't quite work. The Facebook decision certainly does not mean the end of these claims. Plaintiffs will adjust, and one way in which they may adjust is to test some of these claims outside of California, and particularly in Delaware, where the form selection clause puts them. This is especially true because the judge also dismissed plaintiffs' claims brought under the U.S. securities laws, which were not subject to form selection clauses. And the less successful these claims are in California, the more likely that plaintiffs will try to test them in other forums. The final reason why I think these claims are going to spread beyond California, if you will, is that California recently passed legislation requiring some basic board diversity. And as California companies comply with that law, that will take away the basis of plaintiffs' claims. There are, however, many U.S. corporations outside of California, and I think some of them may be tested in some of these lawsuits. Thanks, David. Now on to our second topic, sustainability reporting. Again, there have been a lot of developments already this year, and perhaps most importantly, some progress towards producing globally consistent standards, as long as you don't mind all the acronyms involved. Simon, what's the most important development here, do you think, and what impact will it have? Thanks, Anthea. Yes, the question of how a company's financial reporting reflects sustainability and climate-related matters has become increasingly central. Why is that the case? Well, consistent and accurate financial reporting is key to enabling investors to price assets and make investment decisions, to enabling markets or insurers to price risk, to enable banks and other lenders to make credit decisions, and so on. Without consistency in reporting, it's much harder for investors to make properly informed decisions or for financial institutions to market sustainable investment products. Or at least, the risk that judgments can be second-guessed is that much higher. In an environment where demand for sustainable products is rising rapidly, the uncertainty and lack of consistency, among many other things, creates litigation risks. A plethora of bodies has been working on standards and there have been moves in some countries, New Zealand has been the first and the UK plans to follow shortly, 
to require mandatory financial reporting based on the TCFD, that is the recommendations of the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. In an important recent development, the IFRS Foundation, which sets standards globally for financial reporting, has announced that it's setting up a working group to accelerate the convergence of global sustainability standards, building on existing initiatives such as TCFD. The aim is that this would lead to a new Sustainability Standards Board to sit alongside the Accounting Standards Board. The hope is that this will lead more quickly to the adoption of detailed global standards, which would be a hugely important step forward. Thanks, Simon. Now on to the climate commitments that more and more firms are making. In the UK, many financial services firms are making these commitments voluntarily, and the key area of litigation risk is any gap between those voluntary public commitments and what firms are doing in practice. But in France, large corporates are already required to identify and prevent damage to the environment under its duty of vigilance, and we're now starting to see some case law emerging. Anne-Law, can you tell us about the Paris Administrative Court's decision recently in the trial of the century, and what you think the implications are for financial services firms? Thank you, Anthea. You may remember that in our webinar, we discussed the decision rendered in December by the French Administrative Supreme Court, formally requesting the French government to justify how its refusal to take additional measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions are compatible with its commitment to achieve the targets set for 2030 in the Paris Agreement. In the trial of the century, where a decision was handed out last February, the Paris Administrative Court, going one step further, ruled that the French state has caused an ecological damage by insufficiently reducing its greenhouse gas emissions. The four NGOs which filed this action back in 2018 received a symbolic compensation of one euro. So the main takeaway of this decision is that climate inaction of the French government is now considered as both illegal and causing ecological damage. While these two decisions were directed at the French government, they will inevitably have implications for corporates, including financial services firms. This is generally reflected by the recent actions filed before French courts against businesses in relation to the duty of vigilance you just mentioned. A month ago, a coalition of NGOs, including indigenous groups from the Amazon, sued the French supermarket giant Casino for not having taken appropriate and effective measures to prevent human rights violation and deforestation while selling beef imported from Brazil. Another example would be Total, which has also been sued by French NGOs and local authorities for failing to comply with its vigilance duties in an attempt to fold the company to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. So it's fair to say that in the coming years, France could actually become an attractive forum for these types of claims. Thanks, Anne-Law. Tim, what's the position in Asia are financial services firms formulating climate commitments yet, given the encouragement from the financial regulators to start prioritising ESG? And how do you think the litigation risks around climate reporting are playing out? Thanks, Anthea. Yes, ESG has been increasingly prominent in Asia in recent years. A recent global institutional investor survey found that almost 80% of institutional investors in the Asia-Pacific region increased their ESG investments either significantly or moderately in response to COVID-19. 
And just under 60% of investors in the region expect to have completely or to a large extent incorporated ESG issues into their analytics and decision making by the end of this year. Now, from the perspective of regulators, the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission has been pushing forward initiatives aimed at achieving better and more consistent availability of ESG-related information, both from listed corporates as well as from certain institutional investors. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority has been encouraging financial institutions to factor ESG-related risks into the overall risk management assessments that they do. And in terms of ESG-related litigation, I think it's still relatively early days in Asia. Historically, and for many reasons, Asia has generally been less litigious than, for example, the US or Europe. And that applies to ESG-related disputes too. But over time, as ESG-related litigation risks increase elsewhere, we'll inevitably see those risks begin to take more shape in Asia too. Many economies in Asia are developing rather than developed, and ESG factors, uh, all three of them, uh, in each of the three categories, can be more pronounced in such markets. Great. Thanks, Tim. We also wanted to touch on the spotlight on ESG funds at the moment and the potential for greenwashing. Again, this is a topic that has received attention this year with the publication of several reports by NGOs, highlighting particular ESG funds which include investments in fossil fuel companies. There's nothing necessarily misleading in the description of the fund. In fact, the investee companies may have performed well in the metrics used to evaluate their sustainability performance. These metrics can lead to results which investors may be surprised about, and that in turn can lead to allegations of greenwashing. What we may see this year is pressure from investors for firms to take a holistic view of what ESG, sustainability and green labels mean, rather than a view that is narrowly focused on metrics or ratings. The question of whether investors have been misled in this context is already being tested in the German courts. A fund manager in Germany is being sued on the basis that its impact calculator, included on its website as part of the fund's marketing material, was misleading. And this type of litigation is something that we do expect to see more of in other jurisdictions. Now, a final word. David, the US is playing catch-up to some extent. Financial services firms may be some time away from making climate commitments or focusing on the makeup of ESG funds. What's your overall view of the action we'll see on climate risk this year in the US? So I think this is a very fast-changing area in US law, both with regards to disclosure and otherwise. One of the very last things the Trump administration did was ramp through a regulation that prohibits banks from taking not credit related issues in lending decisions. Many think this was targeting decisions by some banks to reduce their exposure to the extractive sector. The Biden administration has frozen this regulation to study it when it came into office, and they may very well to seek to scrap it, either through litigation or regulatory action. We should find out more in the next 45 days or so. The other big development is that a number of regulators, the SEC, the CFTC, New York state regulators, are all actively considering questions of climate change, including the amount of disclosure that should be required and for whom. The SEC recently asked the public to comment on that question, and we expect that it will publish some guidance this summer or in the fall. Now, whether that guidance takes root or not remains to be seen. We're seeing some elected politicians already threatening to challenge any such disclosure requirements as an abridgment of free speech. So litigation is certainly likely, and it should be a fun year on this front in the United States.
Thanks, David, and thank you all for joining us. For further updates, please do keep an eye on the Freshfields Sustainability and Risk and Compliance blogs, and you can find our other publications on ESG on freshfields.com too.